had the eight million pound term sheet, everything was good, the valuation was strong, we were very happy. And then I think it was a couple of weeks before we were due to sign, I got a call, my brother comes into the room, he's like, Darwin had pulled out. And I was like, oh, my heart sunk. I felt like there was a bereavement that I just heard within the family because I knew that I did not have the cash in the tank and I knew that I didn't have anything left after this. Not to get too meta, but today on Secret Leaders is the story of secret sales. And we hope you don't keep this a secret because today's guest, Sash Kukardia, is going to get deep, personal, and share some of the behind-the-scenes facts you never normally hear in the complicated journey of building a personal empire. Now, Secret Sales is the exclusive members-only travel club that... Uh, just checking you're paying attention, Satch. Obviously, that secret escapes. <laughs> secret Sales is a well-known fashion sales website that Satch co-founded with his brother, Nishal, who is often described as the better-looking, intelligent one behind all the good ideas. And that obvious... I cannot believe you started with that. That obviously means that we're going to presume that any of the bumps in the road in the journey you're going to hear today are all Sash's fault alone. Now, like many of our guests, Sash is a jack of all trades, so he started life with a pirate radio station, had a stint in fashion, and is now managing his fiance Bambi Baines, and her R&B career, which is a new industry for him to be breaking into, whilst launching a new beauty brand, which is something a little bit closer to home, given his love for dressing up and probably wearing makeup that we can't confirm yet, but hopefully he's going to tell us all about. <laughs> <laughs> so, get ready for a brilliant episode with a man who's got so many talents that the last time I saw him he was wearing an actual utility belt to keep them in yep just like batman so presumably he could store some essentials like a beard comb a few hair ties a spare phone battery to handle the volume of gym selfies he does and almost definitely a makeup brush to cover any blemishes sash welcome to the show wow that that was superb i think um i don't really know how to how to come on to that but that was brilliant Let's let's kick off. We've got to, um, I think, start with the early years would make the most sense. So you grew up with fashion in your blood and your family. So can you tell us a little bit about life for you and Nish growing up? My parents are, are from Kenya, both of them born and raised there. And we're, we're first generation UK, which means that we, we were brought up given everything that they didn't really have. My parents were quite focused in terms of what they wanted. You know, they came to the UK in the 50s and 60s when things were probably quite challenging for an immigrant uh, and particularly someone with Asian descent to try and get a job. So they were forced into starting businesses, which sort of drove this entrepreneurial uh, sort of journey for them. And off the back of that, we as siblings were all taught a bunch of things from a young age, which included things like working together in the family, you know, starting a business. Not that there's anything wrong with running a business, but they sort of felt as though starting a business was always going to do better for us. And, you know, a bunch of other things that really, like, moulded us as individuals and characters ever, ever since we were young. I went to a public school, um, so did all of my siblings, and sort of went down the route of not really being told particularly well what to do. And so I was sort of expelled when I was nine years old from school for selling newspapers. I then went into selling mobile what phones. You I oh, then sorry, went... you got expelled for selling newspapers? Well, look, it's not illegal to sell newspapers, right? But the challenge that I had was that I was just... It was ingrained in me to, to, to make money. So I was buying the Daily Sport for, for 30p, selling it for 150 And the, the issue was that there were, there were topless models on the centre page. And so when the school found out about this, it was, you know, quite an issue for my parents. Although having said that, my father was... 
He was like, oh, entrepreneur, very good, like this. And he was like quite happy about it. And my mother, on the other hand, was just livid. And so whilst I didn't really need to do that, it was just something that I, I felt like I needed to do. And then ever since then, sort of went down the route of selling mobile phones, then starting a pirate radio station, which we can come on to. And then eventually that led me into this whole world of, of fashion and, uh, and everything else that I'm doing right now. It wasn't that I needed to do any of these things, right? Because my parents gave me everything that I wanted. It was just something inside me that wanted to, to make money and, and do things that was, you know, in the eyes of the world, entrepreneurial. And at, at my age, and all I was thinking about doing was wanting to make money and not necessarily be told what to do. Was Nish the same? Opposite. He was very, he was a full conformist and he was uh, not interested in anything like that at all. Um, it's not about being sporty and being less sporty and being a super high academic or being sort of middle of the road. It was more just that we had different personalities with different interests and different focuses. And, you know, I am who I am and I don't regret the person uh, or, or my experiences, but for sure I gave my parents a hard time growing up and I'm, I'm you know, confident that if I had a child, anything like how I was, I would probably be pulling my hair out. Okay, so um, like just for uh, listeners to get some context, uh, you know, the question I asked earlier about true religion or Pepe genes, then, uh, you know, talk to us a little bit about that experience, what that means. So my father came to the UK, as I said earlier, um, on his Jack Jones, must have been sort of, you know, early teens, worked in various ice cream factories, biscuit factories, uh, and in a number of different places to try and make money, um, you know, clean plates at restaurants and that type of thing. And eventually uh, was involved in the, the inception of a denim brand that started on Portobello Road Market, which was called Pepe Jeans. Um, and then that sort of grew into what was a global brand. And he was responsible for the Benelux market. Um, so he was commuting every single day to Belgium. So he would wake up at 4, 4.30. My mum would drop him to the airport. He would fly all the way to Belgium. And, you know, back then, they, it was much easier to, to get on an aeroplane. So security was was obviously less and you could get onto, onto a plane, off a plane and into your office within a few hours. And he would come back every single evening. And I, I actually didn't see my father for probably the, like a good 10 or 12 years during this period where he was commuting because, you know, he was coming back later than... My, my bedtime. So I was already asleep by the time he came back, but he came back because he wanted to see us in bed. And so he, for me, was like a weekend father, right? So he was around like for two days a week and was more about instilling discipline, particularly when uh, there were four young children. I have three siblings, not just my older brother Nish, but I have a sister and a younger brother. And, you know, my mum had uh, three children under three at one point, and um, and then the and then the fourth came along a few years later, and so she had her hands full. I actually, taking this even a few steps further, I was sent to my grandmother's house for the first couple of years of my life because my mother simply couldn't handle all of us at home. So I've no aban I've no abandonment issues at all. I can I can assure you, and I definitely don't give a stick for it. So whose idea was Secret Sales? How did that idea come about? Well, there was obviously a company in France called Vent Privé and that inspired, uh, you know, Nish and I into starting the business. And actually, our understanding of Vent Privé and the reason why we wanted to get into that was, was partly down to understanding, you know, through my father's experience, the whole fashion enterprise in that fashion world. And, you know, to put things into context for you. So 
we used to go to trade shows and fashion shows with my father ever since we were young. And I used to love everything that was to do with fashion. And my, my niche used to hate it. Um, but it sort of gave us an insight into how things worked, right? Because and normally brands would, they would produce inventory, which they would have to commit to in terms of balance sheet. They would then sell inventory. And then whatever's left, they would then try and, you know, sell at a reduced price to try and, you know, maximize on, on whatever profits they made. And this model that Von Privé came up with was a beautiful model because it was a negative working capital model. There was no commitment to stock. You would sell the inventory up front. The brands would obviously continue with that risk, but as a platform, they would sell the inventory, only commit to what was sold, and then payment terms would then allow for, you know, between zero and 30 days, which means that you end up having a positive working cap uh, within the business over that period, and it was like an interest-free loan. And it sort of just, it, it just was very beautiful. Uh, and my my family's love for fashion totally allowed us to try and adapt this model. You know, we would go to Selfridges on Boxing Day, at, at Boxing Day every single day and every single year, trying to like you know rummage around and try and gather inventory that and stock that we could buy. And actually, that concept of going to box to Selfridges on Boxing Day isn't particularly good. But when you think about what that is in terms of psychology, right? Why are people going to sell food? Why are people discount shopping? What is driving them to go absolutely mad and to literally start fights within the department store? A lot of it's down to like this discovery stage. And actually the most heightened point in the customer's journey when it comes to purchasing is at the point at checkout. It's not when, they, when they're at home and it's not actually when they're looking for the, for the items. It's when they've found it and they're buying it. And so, you know, adapting that concept online and bringing time-limited flash sales, which essentially creates an increase in heartbeat, it, it plays on your, your fear of FOMO, right, and, and, and missing out. And, you know, you end up buying things that you just absolutely don't need. It's amazing. I mean, I bought this Dyson fan from Secret Sales. It was just, it wasn't even a particularly good discount. And it was so expensive. And I kept it in the box for a year because I was like, how can I spend £300 on a fan? It's just absolutely crazy. I mean, it is a fantastic product, I have to say, and I still use it, but it's just, uh, it took me a year to, to take it out of the box. Satch, you have this idea for a website, but I presume that neither you or Nish are technical. Right. So how do you, how do you actually get, you know, you, how do you go from being entrepreneurs to actually being like, your, your product is a website, so how do you go about getting and that not, built? And not a simple website either. Definitely a bespoke, complicated website. So yeah, a great question. It was quite complex. Um, so we borrowed a hundred grand from a bank. We put my parents' house on the line. We then went to a creative agency uh, in Marlebone and we, we basically showed them a few websites that we liked and we told them to replicate it. And we had no idea what the backend functions were needed in terms of build, but we wanted a flexible platform that was bespoke that we could continue to build on. What we didn't want to do, I mean, you know, the Spotify's, not, 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 not the Spotify's, the um, Shopify's, etc., weren't necessarily uh, in place in any particular scale at that point. I'm sure that, that, that they were in operation, but I wasn't aware of them. And I'm glad that we didn't, you know, go on, you know, one of these plug-in platforms because what we ended up creating was a perfect solution for what we needed because you know there were some things that we could very quickly strip out and there were other things that we built and essentially all we did was hire an incredible team around us and the, one of the first hires that we made was this guy who essentially was our CTO and he you know he wasn't titled a CTO but he was just almost like a hacker uh, is the best way to describe him and anything that we wanted done he was able to do 
as a quick fix. And that allowed us to then build and the scale and, and, and deliver a platform that essentially worked. And Niche is definitely more competent on, on the tech side. But remember that you know starting a business doesn't require two or three of you doing the same thing. So I had my responsibilities, which was always to do with front of house, you know, going to the fashion shows, selecting the product, making sure that we have the white merchandise to sell. And actually, that's all that matters versus, you know, what Nish was able to focus on was making sure that, you know, we were building the website correctly, that it was functioning correctly, um, and that, you know, in terms of marketing, there was someone overlooking the spend and things like that. And was so, it quite easy having that uh, separation between the two of you? Like, did you ever have to have that conversation, with, especially working with your with a brother and saying, this is what I'm responsible for, this is what you're responsible for, especially as it probably wasn't necessarily that clear cut in terms of, you know, what your skills were? It was natural because we're just so different in terms of personality. So there was never a need to try and argue a point about I should be doing this and you should be doing that. It was more, I'm going to do this and I definitely don't want to do that. And it was just perfectly equal in that respect. That balance meant that a lot of the time we had differing opinions about how the business should be run and and what we should be doing. But it was usually that middle ground a piece of me and a, and a piece of niche that actually delivered in what the right result was for the business. And, you know, the difference between working with your brother and working with someone else is that there is what my chairman described uh, a few years later as corporate transparency. So, you know, I could say anything at any time and, you know, we would be heated for about 30 seconds and then a minute later we'd be absolutely fine. And we just had this dynamic where, you know, we knew that it was just a short-lived emotion and we also had a huge amount of love for each other so we were able to I guess communicate in, in our own unique way but it was very different for a lot of people to see particularly you know those that came into our company from big corporates because they just weren't used to seeing that level of transparency but it also meant that we were able to you know really test and learn and, and be nimble and not have to worry about all of the politics. So Secret Sales has had like a, a ridiculously interesting up and down topsy-turvy journey. And rather than sort of ask these questions one by one, you know, I'd love you to give basically like a five minute monologue of how you see the story looking back, you know, from how it started, the highs, the lows, and definitely a couple of the twists and the turns. Because then I, what I think would be really interesting is to get inside some of the the psychology and psyche at those moments as well so can you set the scene for us absolutely so i started the business at 22 went in completely blind built a business and a platform that you know we thought would work but had no idea how quickly it would accelerate particularly when layman's brothers collapsed and the recession in 2008 the the media was teaching everyone to stop spending money and suddenly secret sales popped up out of the blue with all of these great brands and giving customers uh you know things that they needed for half the price and so we went through a like a, a tremendous exponential period in the first few years where we wanted to require, because it was a private member site where you had to sign up before you got access. And once you signed up, you then were privy to all of the sales that we were launching, which were time limited, and it sort of drove this urgency. We wanted 30,000 members signed up in the first 12 months. And actually, we had 30,000 members sign up in month one. And it just and this was without marketing. This was word of mouth. We just had a landing page that was saying something along the lines of, Shh, it's a secret. Uh, you know, these sales are coming and sign up for your interest. And suddenly, just it, it started to really take off. We were courted by VCs, decided not to partner with VCs. I mean, we knew that we needed cash into the business because, you know, as a family, we were only willing to invest so much. 
And it wasn't because we didn't want to invest anymore, but it just wasn't sensible to do that. And so we, we, we looked at institutional funding and we were courted by these VCs, uh, but we were then subsequently courted by a German group uh, called Brands of Friends, and they ended up plugging £4 million into the business in 2010, which you know allowed us to not only accelerate through the injection of cash, but accelerate through the blueprint that they had to scale. They got to €80 million Euros in year two, doing the same thing as what we were doing, and we were on like €7 million. So like, you know, there was a big disparity, but that was also driven by you know, market landscape and, and uh, differences in, in economy. What we didn't realise that eBay was uh, on the door knocking at Brands of Friends, wanted to acquire that business, and you know, they ended up acquiring Brands of Friends and the shares that Brands of Friends held in secret sales for $200 million within the space of nine months of us signing that deal with that German group. So we started the year with Brands of Friends, the Berlin-based company, and ended the year with eBay on our cap table, and then realized quite quickly that, you know, we had gone from a break-even business of 20 people to 75, and we'd, you know, we'd, we'd suddenly gone from, you know, not needing to actually spend money to burning a quarter of a million pounds a month. And when, when eBay wasn't going to support us, that meant quickly restabilizing the business. And so we ended up, all the wonderful things that we did under Brands of Friends in terms of scaling the company fivefold and doing all this wonderful stuff, we then had to scale back the teams because we were going to be cash out within five months. And it was just one of the worst situations for me because I went from thinking that we had it all to not having anything. And then going back out to market, and no VC wanted to sit on the sit on a cap table with eBay owning forty percent of the business, and so we ended up having to try and find ways where we could liquid um, dilute eBay down, and eventually got to a point where, you know, we were able to secure uh, six and a half million through a syndicate of VCs, and they stayed with us all the way through till two thousand and seventeen when the company was sold to private equity, and unfortunately. When we sold, there was a couple of things that happened that year. Brexit was one of them. The referendum really pushed our valuation down. And also, you know, the challenge of all of the ambiguity that surrounded Brexit meant that there was just some uncertainty in terms of what what was going to happen. And we ended up, you know, doing a deal. But, you know, the PE company that bought Secret Sales made some commercial decisions that hemorrhaged the revenue within that business within the space of 12 months. So my brother and I ended up buying the company back. Uh, a year later and then we spent about eight or nine months firefighting trying to fix the business and eventually then went out and sold it again in May 2019 uh, to a retail group that was led by a couple of uh, entrepreneurs who had done particularly well in their previous life and so since then I've sort of been able to now think about a whole array of different things uh, which has been really, really, really refreshing, if anything else, because when all, when all you do for 13 years of your life is think about one thing, I mean, I'm surprised that I, I lasted 13 years. It's quite a long time. So that is pretty much as quick as I can explain that, that journey. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. 
Banter automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Before we get on to, you know, the part of your life you're enjoying, I want to spend some time on the part of your life that you don't want to talk about quite so much because, you know, that's that's what a good interviewer would do. So can you, I mean, can we start off by putting some numbers on it? Are any of these things like relatively public? Like what were you, what, how much did you raise? How much did you sell at? How much did you rebuy at? Anything, and this isn't necessarily... Um, you know, with a forensic insight, this is actually to give listeners some understanding of how business deals like this actually happen in the real world, because it happens, but it's rare. Sure. So when we sold the company, we sold the business when it was doing 47 million in revenues. And my, my brother, uh, as founder directors, were forced at that point to sell the business because we didn't have a majority. And we had, th- you know, three we had a bunch of VCs, three of whom had voting rights. Two of those were nine years in on a 10-year fund. And so for them, it was more just a matter of formality. And my sense was that they had also made a fair amount of money from some of the other portfolio businesses that existed. So this was just, you know, finding a way to, you know, close what was to them quite a good journey. But no one expected Brexit to happen and all of those things. Um, and so, you know, the the business... I had multiple offers on the table uh, in 2016 when we were selling the business. We had we had a bunch of strategic European flash sale businesses bidding for the business, and then we had a PE company that sat at the bottom of that of those offers. And all of the the, the flash sale businesses that were bidding that were we were very close to closing those deals. They pulled out within two days of Brexit, which meant that the only offer left on the table was the PE company. Did they know that? Yeah, no, they didn't know that. But, you know, it was obvious that no European player was going to invest into the UK immediately after what happened. And the problem was that the PE company wasn't placing the same premium as some of these other, you know, companies uh, in France and Germany and and so forth. And so uh, it was a big shock to my system because we'd raised in total by that point £18 million worth of equity, plus we had taken some debt and... You know, it meant that after working 10 years, the valuation that was on the table was not leaving 
you know, the founder directors with as much money as we thought we would, we would get. And that was the reality of the situation. And there was nothing that we could do about it. Unless we were willing to recapitalise the business ourselves, we were going to have to just accept that this is the deal that the board wants uh, and we were going to have to just drive that forward. And so we ended up, you know, striking a deal with the PE company knowing that they needed us within the business. Uh, and, you know, they incentivized us and they wanted my brother and I's engagement and interest. And we were still running the business in their eyes. But they were making a bunch of changes, which, frankly, I didn't agree with. And I'll give you, I'll give you an example, right? So, you know, everyone above, if I remember well, like £60,000 salary was fired within the first week of their control, which basically meant that anyone, all of the people that actually made Secret Sales such a fabulous business in terms of its excitement and its DNA and its culture and all of that, you know, left under really uncomfortable terms. You know, I, I, I my brother and I had to, had to actually make them redundant. And I was ashamed. I had tears in my eyes. I was, you know, I couldn't look at them in, I couldn't look at them in the face. It was the most horrible thing because, you know, these people had worked with me for 10 years, some of them for, you know, for eight years. None of them were less than six years old, really. And uh, we were a family and we worked so well as a unit. And, you know, that magic that made Secret Sales vanished within a day of, uh, of that happening. And then that, that was just one of a bunch of things that meant that the business, rather than going up 20 million within the year, went down 20 million. So we, we, we went from a 50 million pound business to a 30 million pound business. And we ended up buying the company back a year later because that process as a founder, was super emotional, right? I mean, I really struggled with the concept of, of the business going downhill and seeing, you know, everything that it went through was just a really hard thing for me. Um, and so we ended up striking a deal with the PE company that allowed us to, you know, incentivize them at a, at a later stage and, you know, to give them the opportunity to, I guess, to save face. It meant taking back a problem child, right? Because when we sold it, the business was working. When we bought it back, it was failing miserably. And, you know, we then tried to fix what we could. It's quite difficult to suddenly change what happens within the business um, when, for me, it was my team that made secret sales, secret sales. It was, it was the people that we surrounded ourselves with. And all of these people were absolutely amazing in terms of their experience and what they, what they contributed. Trying to fix a business without superstars in your team is not an easy thing to do. Remember, I, like by that point, we had like, it was just a junior team. Everyone was being paid an entry-level salary, and it's, you know, it's not a straightforward process. But my brother and I were able to clean it up to a point where we, were, where we attracted external interest within the space of seven months. And then conversations continued for about five months with that party up until the point that we sold it. But it was... Um, it was not an easy thing to do. And even, you know, that, that second round, the whole situation uh, when you start a business and you sell a business and you end up buying it back and then trying to sell it again, you know, it sounds like a wonderful thing. And I don't take anything away from the experience, but I do sometimes look back and think that I should have just let it be after that first sale. I guess in the moment as well must have been very draining. Well, it's emotional. It's almost like, you know, seeing your child just totally abused, 
you know, in their teenage years, and then you try to bring them back under your control, and by that point, they're just so damaged, you can't do anything with them, you know, it's just like, a, it's a really difficult thing, but, you know, I don't take anything away from that, and the experience that I got, and everything else, I'm very grateful for, but it, but it, it definitely took it out for me, and so, you know, post, life post secret sales, I've spent a lot of time trying to rebalance my mind, and focus on things that bring me enjoyment and comfort, and allowed me the time and space to decompress and to reevaluate um, all of the things that were important to me. And, you know, I'm still driven by success. I'm still driven by money. I'm still driven by a lot of other things that make me um, who I am. But I think that there's definitely been a fundamental shift in what, I th what my metric of success is or metrics of success. And so I'm perhaps just a little bit more... I'm a little bit more accepting and rounding and I have like I don't have as high an expectation right I mean you know I I thought I was gonna you know I could retire after secret sales and the reality is is due to a number of macro influences that we had no control over we weren't able to do that like can I just ask before you um before you go like off, off the topic there you know, it was really interesting hearing you talk about, you know, your new your new life and rebalancing. And obviously, when you go through entrepreneurship, and you're building your dream, whether it's successful or not, you give up a lot. And so what do you think you sacrifice the most in your journey? What like what, what do you really like take pride in trying to get that balance back with now? Well, I mean, in my in the first four to five years of secret sales, I had zero social life, I had friends actually arguing with me because of the little interest I showed in anything that my friends were doing. And in my mind, I wasn't actually disinterested. I just couldn't think about all of these things at the same time. And so, you know, whether it'd be something really simple, like going to like a party or a festival or doing something that just meant spending time with them, I wasn't doing any of those things. And I don't regret looking back doing that because I think you need to sacrifice certain parts of your life because you can't do everything but I think now there's a lot of you know my friends are really important to me the people that I spend time with are really important to me like I would really have to be deep into something for me to allow that to happen again and just in terms of like you know looking back on your period with with business like what do you think was um what was your high point and what was your categorical low point high point i think was during the period of 2012 to 2015 when everything in the business was just working and i had surrounded myself with a c-suite of just superstars you know there were we had a cfo cmo cco and these guys were pretty much running the business, right? We had about 120 staff or something at the time. My brother and I had the C-suite report into us, but, you know, I wasn't having to drive much of the day-to-day -day because I had the amazing expertise of these people around me. And we then started advertising on TV and we started throwing these crazy parties at the box and we started doing just really fun stuff. Like, that was just, a, and, you know, as, as a boy in his, in his you know, 20s, and, and not even late 20s, mid 20s, when all of that was happening, I can assure you that that was a lot of fun. And, you know, I take that high as, you know, the business was working, we were winning awards, it was just, you know, I think you were there, like, we, we, I, I, like I, won a, I won a Mini Cooper car at the, at the Great British Entrepreneurs Award. No idea even how that happened, but it's just like little things like that, which I look back on and be like, I can't believe that that actually, you know, that I was there and, and, we, and we 
won that accolade because at the time that you know and the car that we won i gave to my staff right i didn't take that car home i yeah, went you wouldn't be next... dead seen driving that right hey I, I i branded it secret sales to the maximum so like actually i would have uh I, it, it was really a very like funny a little thing. estate agent <laughs> driving around he's trying to he's trying to pretend like he's really humble giving the car away but i actually just didn't want to drive it no yeah he's driving his lambo <laughs> No, come on. Okay, look, let's not talk, let's not talk about that before the minute. But let's go to um, let's go back to that mini. So, so, so that mini, what we did with the staff is, is we said to them, look, we're going to ensure everyone in the business, whether you're junior, entry, you know, just joined the company, or whether you're you're, you're senior, everyone's going to get insured. And actually, each one of you has the opportunity to take this car away for the week, and you'll be voted by other people within the business. And we just had a voting system, which meant that the car would move from employee to employee every single month. <laughs> and it was funny because we ended up having to take the car away because one of the girls ran over a cyclist. And what happened was, it, well, she came into the office not saying anything. And then, I, like, a couple of weeks later, I got a letter in the post saying, you know, by this angry cyclist saying, you know, You've, you ran me over and you think I wouldn't know who you are. You're, the car is fully branded Secret Sales. I then looked back at the records and there was this young, young girl and I asked her about it. And she was like, no, I didn't hit him. I, I didn't run him over. I did hit him, though. And I was like, okay, well, maybe you should have told us that. But, you know, th their stories weren't aligned. But it, 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 well, I realised at that point that this was probably quite a dangerous thing to do. And so, you know, against my will, I ended up giving the car back to Minnie. But I assume that wasn't your worst day. So we've gone through the highs. Um, and, you know, because like my old business, as you know, like I was in the same industry, you know, I did, I, you know, I used to see you at those awards all the time. And you guys were, you know, absolutely toast of the town, winning every single time. And it was great. And I was like delighted for you both because, you know, you both just nice blokes really enjoying your moment. Um, and the moment lasted a long time. And it was, you know, multiple awards over multiple years from top premium award givers. But then, you know, that stuff, as I've experienced too, doesn't last. And so what what was the flip side of that? The lowest moment in the in the ten years that I was properly running the business was probably year, it was in between eBay joining and us being able to raise more money through a syndicate of VCs. And this is the year that I had to recalibrate and the staff that we just hired, I had to make redundant. We had to renegotiate all of our contracts and all of that stuff. What I missed out in my very quick explanation of my, of my journey earlier was that in that year, 2000 and I think it was 11, uh, we had a private equity company come to us and they said, look, we're going to give you eight million pounds. And I was like, we were, my brother and I sat with them and we said, please don't do this deal if you're genuinely not going to complete this deal because, you know, we're cash out in eight weeks, right? So we, we don't have the flexibility for you to pull any manoeuvres. And um, everything was going down a, you know, a treat. We had the eight million pound term sheet. Everything was good. The valuation was strong. We were very happy. And then I think it was a couple of weeks before we were due to sign, uh, I got a call. My brother comes into the room. He's like, you, can, you, can you come here? And I was like, why, what's up? And he was like, Darwin had pulled out. And I was like, oh, that was just, my heart sunk. I felt like there was a bereavement that I just heard within the family because I knew that I did not have the cash in the tank and I knew that I didn't have anything left after this. I was just emotionally, but and I was young, so I wasn't, I wasn't particularly you know, forthcoming. And uh, we managed to get through it. We just juggled, we, we, we stretched creditors, juggled. And it was actually that period of 
sustainability, what we did to stay alive in that two months following, that is the reason why the group of in, the VCs invested in us because they said to my brother and I, you know, we're investing because the two of you have just, you're so shrewd and you're so, the fact that you've just totally recalibrated your business on no cash means that we're willing to give you some money and let's see how this goes. And that for us, you know, it, that, but I, I could, I'll never forget that feeling that I had. It was just horrible. All right, so uh, you've humoured me for long enough on the secret sales journey. I guess my last question on that would be, you know, looking back, what would you do differently? You could do it all again. I would have sold the company when I, I had an offer from Groupon in 2014 and I had a, a big, a much bigger chunk of the business and they, 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 I think their offer was for 33 million at the time and uh, I should have taken it. I How was much greedy. did you own of the company at the time? Around 40%, yeah. my brother and I. We should have taken it. And what stopped for, you? I mean, was it literally greed, we, we greed thought, and hubris or also cap table and... and no, it had nothing to do with cap table. It was to do with everything was working. This was the golden years that I spoke about before. Everything was working so well that I just thought, what's 30 million? I can turn this into a 100 million pound business. Why would I sell it for 30 now? Uh, but things changed and Brexit happened and a lot of you know things got in the way. And unfortunately... There isn't anything that we could have done about it. You're now launching a new beauty brand, and like, does the obviously tell us about that? But also, does the does the lesson of greed um, change how you think about running it? Like, what is the plan for how you want to run it? Do you have a clear idea about how big you want it to get? And most importantly, do you see yourself becoming? a massive fucking hypocrite like a lot of people and forgetting these lessons because once things get going on the journey it's hard not to get excited by the moment you know do you have checks and balances in place about that stuff just to be very clear that i have zero interest in raising institutional funding for any of the businesses that i'm involved in right now not because because of market conditions just because you know a super fast growing business that never makes any money is not particularly appealing to me at my stage right now, having gone through that exponential growth and, and that journey myself. And so I'm focused on building smaller businesses that are growing at a much lesser rate that are highly profitable. And so I'm structuring these businesses that I'm doing, and it's not just the beauty brand, but there's a, there's, there's a few other things that I'm thinking about and doing, but I'm doing it in a way that allows me to, to maintain the momentum of these businesses. And so I'm thinking about traditional, it's more like, you know, it's not, it's not that I wouldn't do something in the tech space with, you know, pure startup and really go for growth again. I just think that before I do that, I need to just create around me a bunch of entities that allow me to have not have all of my eggs in one basket. Because if that high risk strategy fails for the second time or third time or fourth time, you know, I want to be able to make sure that there are multiple revenue streams coming in that are just ticking over. And so what I'm doing right now is creating uh, a bit of sustainability and leveraging the audience that exists. So, you know, the beauty brand, I didn't I, I don't have a desire to be a, a, you know, someone that launches a beauty brand for the sake of it. My, my fiance has a super strong uh, social media following. She's a singer and ha and was signed to a record label and has been able to build a super sticky audience. And all I'm doing is is trying to monetize that audience by creating a beauty brand 
which is named after her and creating product that is slightly different and you know I'm trying there's a slight shift on on its production and things like that which gives it a USP but it's all about you know leveraging what's in front of me and doing it much slower and in and in more control and you know I'm not going to say I wouldn't take money for it I will probably take investment for it but I'm not going to raise 18 million pounds of equity uh, and um try and you know do do a silly story I would much rather not have to worry about economical influences all the time. Well, talk to us about work-life balance then. Like, you know, obviously full-time running businesses, like you said, for 13 years. What's your life balance been like since then? It took me probably about six months to really decompress. And I, and I wasn't, I, you know, you think that your mind has changed and it's shifted and, it, and it, well, a lot of the time hasn't. And even the thought of starting a new business wasn't something that I was particularly engaged with. Well, I just needed to just find some peace in my life. And, you know, I've always been a super advocate of fitness and I've always been exercising regularly, if not every day. I eat well, I intermittently fast, as you know, and have been doing that for about two and a half years. You know, so my lifestyle isn't unhealthy. Uh, and, I ha- and I'm driven as a person and as a character. Everything that I do is driven on routine. So I like to go to bed at a certain time. I like to wake up at a certain time. I like to do things all at a regimented time. And not everyone adheres to that. But for me, that system works. And so just returning to that normality, because when you're working uh, in this high stress, high drive mode, you know, you can't have routine all the time because things are just not ha- the way that you want them to be. You've got meetings that overhang. You get home from the office at 11 p.m. You're waking up at 6 p.m. the next day or 6 a.m. Sorry, there's loads of different things that you're having to think about. And you know, a regimented routine is 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 definitely one thing that allowed me to just get myself back into the right frame of mind. And I think it took me a while to also start thinking about the things that I needed to do not for my career, but for Bambi's career, my fiance, I wanted to spend time thinking about how I can push her forward and how I can make her career better and bigger. And so for the first six to eight months post-Secret Sales, all I did was think about creating a record label that was purely to allow us to, to release music that she would have control over and she would own own and you know have full flexibility over because previously when she was signed to a record label she you know the commercials around that aren't very sensible you know as as an artist you you know have the awareness and you know you're the face of but actually when it comes to the commercials the record label was making all the money and so i've created this entity which now allows us to release music, but for her to own that music and for her to actually make money from it. And then the beauty brand is just a little byproduct of that. And, you know, I've gone through the motions of building that up and I've just had the third sample get delivered to me two days ago. So I'm still in the process of just trying to to finalise and what that means and then put that into production and then we'll build a website and try to do all the all the B2C elements of of building a brand and I think my experience of building secret sales and what it meant as a consumer facing business there's a lot of that that I can translate into this beauty brand and I'm confident that 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 will do particularly well given all of the the success that she's already had with with her audience and then there's a few other really basic things you know like getting involved in some property um, which is like you know, probably as boring as as anyone would want to get. No one wants to really talk about that. But, you know, at the same time, it's just there's a lot of really good opportunities in the market right now. And 
when you think about sustainability, when you think about long term, when you think about the margins that exist, if you do it well, you know, there's there's uh, opportunities to really scale that and, and to do something interesting. And so, you know, I'm being I've turned into a bit of a boring person where I'm just thinking about traditional high revenue, high profit businesses. And then once I've got them in place, I'm going to start coming back and I'm going to annoy you and, and do something fresh. So starting to wrap now, I guess, in terms of, you know, knowing listeners or we always want to learn new information from our guests, etc. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Was it sell at 30 million to Groupon? <laughs> that should have been, that absolutely should have been what it was. But the, um, there is never a good time to start anything, particularly a startup, right? There's always a list of reasons as to why you shouldn't do it. And the older you get, the more that list grows. The best advice that I was given, and I can't remember who gave it to me, but it stuck with me, is that if you're going to start anything, whether it's a startup or do something, you need to just do it now because it'll only ever get harder, you know? And as you get older, you take more responsibilities, more liabilities, bigger mortgages, you've got kids running around, you've got wives to look after, everything else, and it just becomes uh, that much more challenging. I think it was you, Rich, um, that said that, wasn't it? It it was probably Rich. He's the smartest man in the room, always. Yeah, Such always confides in me for advice. I do, I do, I do. Speaking of uh, confiding then, Based on your own journey, what would your advice be? Fresh advice for people starting up today or in the journey? So never, ever, ever start a company on your own. Don't ever be a sole founder of a business because you will have zero life and you'll have no one to, to support. Every business that I'm involved in, I make sure that I surround myself with at least one other person who can share the journey with me, not because of the loneliness of entrepreneurship, because it is super lonely, but actually more than that, it's about being able to, to divvy up the workload. And there is normally a lot to do and in such a short period of time. And so that is the biggest piece of advice I'd give anyone is just don't do this alone. And there's a lot of founders that are just like, it's my idea, so I want to be the person that's driving it and I don't want anyone else really involved as a founder. And, you know, that ego is probably the reason why a lot of those businesses don't go past year two or year three. And so there's that, you know, Echoing what my father and my mother told me is that I'm I'm fully endorsed going into business with someone that is your family member because, you know, there is none of the whole backstabbing greed that can exist with people that you're less familiar with. And I think that's important because not when the businesses are small, but when the businesses get big, when, when, when you're actually doing a good job and you're making money, you know, you need to be able to rely on your shareholders and your business partner. And I've seen through my own eyes, you know, the politics and the, the dog-eat-dog, you know, that existed within Secret Sales amongst shareholders and, and people within the business. And, you know, it is ruthless, right? Like, there is a lot of things that, that people do to try and get up on, on someone else. And I just, I, I'm glad that I've shared that journey with my brother and not with anyone else. Satch, thank you so much for joining us. What would be your uh, uplifting takeaway for uh, for anyone running a business during COVID? That's the final bit of advice we're looking for, our wise old owl today. Look, the world's changed and it's changed forever. And, you know, we've all been staying at home during quarantine and most of us have enjoyed it. And I actually think the plus side to all of this, despite all of the nightmare that's happened, and my aunt passed away from COVID and, you know, it's impacted my family directly, so I get the hardship. But, you know, I actually think that a lot of businesses are now going to be working from home. And I think that you could really shape your life 
and hack your life in such a way that gives you all of the balance that we were talking about earlier and more. And, um, you know, don't be scared of change. I think that it's really important that everyone moulds with the time. It's not... The people that, that will succeed are the people that are nimble. It's not survival of the fittest, it's survival of the quickest. Love it. Thank you so much for joining us, Sash. Hope you have a lovely evening. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by me, Dan Murray Serta, producer Rich Martell, editor Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and marketing by Hannah Russell of Mags Creative, and stunning visual design by our talented designer Christina Naru of SmartUpVisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming live events on our website, secretleaders.com. If you've not yet, please hit subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend, take a screenshot of this episode and add it to an Insta story. I mean, you know what to do. And tag us at Secret Leaders or at Dan Murray Serta, and we'll add you to our story in appreciation back. Rich and I put together Secret Leaders for free because we love our day jobs as entrepreneurs, but every time someone takes the time to share it, it means a lot to us. So don't forget, it's the little things like that that keep us coming back every week and every year into the studio. See you next week.